Blessed are the eyes which see the things which you see. In nomine Patris et Filii et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Ave Maria. Begin with the epistle today and then move on towards the gospel. The first points from the epistle today from St. Paul. Our sufficiency is from God, point one. Our sufficiency is from God. Staying in the Old Testament for a little bit as St. Paul does. Not as the scribes and the Pharisees taught, as if our sufficiency, what we needed, could come somehow from a merely external, or superficial, even scrupulous observance of external regulations. If that were possible, then the Messiah need never have come. We could have just observed all of the Torah and all of the other uh, regulations, and we could have justified ourselves. That heresy is called Pelagianism, after Pelagius, as you know. So, our sufficiency is not from ourselves, but from God. Remember, again from the epistle, the sons of Israel were not able to look upon the face of Moses on account of the glory or radiance of his face. What is St. Paul getting at there? Our sufficiency is from God. Remember, originally, God had invited the entire Israel, all of the Israelites, he wanted to come up to the Mount Zion. But they refused, right? So then Moses, as the mediator of the covenant, he went by himself and the Israelites stayed down below. That's not what God wanted. So God did kind of a second best plan. So his second best plan was to give the law then to Moses on the top of Mount Sinai. But since the Israelites weren't there to hear it, as originally intended, then Moses had to receive the law on the stony tablets, right? The letters written in stone, rather than having the law written directly on the fleshy tables, as he says, the fleshy tables of the heart. That's what God wanted, but he had to do second best because of the hard hearts of the Israelites. Okay, that's point one. Our sufficiency is from God. Point two, continuing that thought, St. Paul says, and again, this is something we're often, maybe we get the wrong idea, oftentimes we think of, as I've mentioned to you before, well, you know, Old Testament, kind of old, bad, angry God, and the New Testament, bright, happy butterflies and soap bubbles. Okay, well, that's a bit of a, a caricature. We have to be careful of that. St. Paul says, no, the ministry of Moses, Holy Father Moses, for whom we have a great reverence, who appeared with Holy Prophet Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration. Wow, super special, right? So St. Paul, speaking to his listeners, says, if the ministry of Holy Father Moses was glorious, 
such that the Israelites could not even look at his face because of the glory, the doxa, the splendor. Wow. That doesn't sound like bad Old Testament. It sounds like something glorious. St. Paul says, if that was glorious, how much more does the ministry of justice abound in glory? Now that's a little difficult because St. Paul there is speaking of the new covenant, the coming of Jesus Christ. Now we're not accustomed maybe to thinking of the new covenant as a covenant, a ministry of justice. It's not a word that first pops into our mind. Again, back to that caricature I mentioned, Old Testament, angry God, justice, New Testament, happy Jesus, mercy. Okay, that's what we call a false dichotomy, a false opposition. That's a bad formulation. You're not going to get anywhere with that kind of thought because you're breaking God up into parts, but everything is one in God. So God's justice is his mercy. So that's a tension. We have to work on that. All right. This is still in point two. The ministry of justice that Christ brings in himself abounds more. How do we see that? So this this is still point two. So the scribes and the Pharisees now, by this time in our Lord's public ministry, they're on to him. So they know they're not going to get anywhere with the little, you know, first-year philosophy 101 questions. Okay, they figured out that he's a little bit smarter than that. So now they're trying to get him at his own game. So what does the magister of the law, the legis paritus, say today? Master, tempting him. What must I do that I may possess eternal life? Our Lord says, and the scribe was waiting for this answer, right? It's a setup. Our Lord says, in the law, what do you read? What is written there? The scribe's ready with his answer, right? He studied. He gives the answer, perfect textbook answer, which he had heard our Lord himself give. So he's cribbing. He's cribbing from the greats. That's permitted. So the scribe says, Love the Lord your God for with your whole heart and with your whole soul and with all of your strength and with all of your mind, which is where they had stopped before, but now they've learned something from this rabbi from the north. Oh yes, and love your neighbor as yourself. Because even though I don't want to do that, I know you're going to tell me to do that. So let me add that quickly. And that's the answer. So our Lord says, that's it. You got it. And you can imagine your mind, our Lord, starting to kind of move on. But then the scribe stops him and asks his real question. He shows his hand. Well, who was my neighbor anyway? Ah, uh, aha, okay. So now we see. That was his real question. The other one was a fake question. It's a setup. And that's already... Interesting. Before we get into that, look at what the question was formulated and how the answer was. The scribe had said, what must I do that I shall possess eternal life? There's already a problem with the question. It's already formulated in an Old Testament way. So he gives the correct answer and then our Lord says what? Do this 
and you shall possess eternal life? No. Every word is important. Do this and you shall live. That's different. (laughs) Because eternal life is not something that you can buy at the Walmart and set on your shelf. And now that you have it, you're set. That's not eternal life. (laughs) Not a thing. The golden calf, going back to point one, the golden calf is what they really wanted. Something they could make and possess, and we got this golden calf thing, and then we're good, we're protected from the bad things in the world. It's idolatry, obviously. But just because we don't own golden calves in our houses, hopefully, but you know, we may have other things that do a pretty good impression of that. I'll let you just think about what those might be. Something you can possess that will somehow bring you all happiness. The ring of power, if you want to think of it in those terms. Well, that's not what eternal life is, because eternal life is not a thing. It's a person, and not just one person, but three divine persons, the Blessed Trinity, as you know. All right. So he had said that fake question, willing to justify himself, as it says in the Gospel. still important to... It's lovely to go through every point of the parable of the Good Samaritan. I did that last year. Well, not every single point. You couldn't, but I won't go through every single point. It's a very rich parable. only occurs in St. Luke. I just want to point out this thing. Again, still thinking about how the question was formulated. The scribe asked, and who is my neighbor? Think of it from a movie point of view. Think of it, you're the casting director. In which role has the scribe cast himself? As the agent, the actor, the protagonist, to whom must I, being a good and righteous man, show my great magnanimity and mercy? That's how we ask the question, right? Think about the parable. Where does Christ being a better director, cast the scribe and the Pharisee. Not in the role of the Good Samaritan. He casts him in the role, the supporting role, of the man who's left half dead by the side of the road. See how our Lord does that? He just turns it around a bit. So the scribe, thinking he was going to be a bit clever, you have to get up really early to beat the Son of God. You have to get up before he got up, but he got up before the creation of time, so you got to look. And so Christ shows us in his person, but also in the parable, not, again, to whom, I, to whom must I be a neighbor? Christ doesn't want us to really ask that question. More important would be the focus of your prayer time would be this. Who has first been the neighbor to you? And when, and when you ask the question that way, then we see truly, as St. Paul said, our sufficiency is not from ourselves. We can't justify ourselves. You and I, born into this world in original sin, 
were left by the side of that road, half dead. Someone sushipians you. Someone took you up in their arms and brought you to the water of life. Not that you should possess something, but that you would live because of the life of the Son of God. So, that's point two. At the be- now we're in point three. At the beginning of this uh, pericope, this selection from St. Luke, which again occurs only in St. Luke's Gospel, we have this little bit of a prefatory bit, which it's easy to jump over and get right to the parable, which is the fun part in a way. Huh? Well, what does uh, our Lord say? Speaking to his audience, they're all crowded around him. So the gospel started off this way, as I started off my homily. Blessed are the eyes. Blessed are the eyes which see the things that you see. Blessed are the eyes which see the things that you see. Hmm. Another passage, and blessed are the ears which hear the things that you hear. Okay, it's poetic language. It's a tautology if you're into logic. Okay, so what does our Lord mean? Weren't all the people there standing next to him, the scribe, the Pharisee, the apostle, the Blessed Virgin, weren't they all seeing the things that they see? Well, yes and no. To see the things that you see means, are you perceiving Are you seeing with the eyes of the heart, the eyes of the spirit, those things which your physical eyes are beholding? That's what our Lord's saying. And the answer to that question is quite obviously and tragically, no. The scribe, the Pharisee, you and I, standing right next to the Lord, We don't always see with the eye of the heart what our physical eyes are beholding. Hmm. Think about our prayer time. Maybe we've abandoned the life of prayer. Maybe we reluctantly go to our prayer. Maybe we irregularly go to prayer. We try, but we don't, we're not there every day, trying every day to behold what our eyes see. That's okay. Our Lord knows where you are, knows where I am. The Lord always beholds you, and the Lord always beholds me. What does our Lord say? Even their little angels, our guardian angels, they stand always before the face of God. So. That uh, beholding, being in the presence, that's primary. Every, anything else that you do that's going to be worthwhile is going to come from that being, being in the presence. Okay. So how do we do that? Well, I already gave away the answer. We do that in our prayer time. And again, to go back to point one, our sufficiency is not from ourselves. The fruitfulness of our prayer time doesn't come from, I'm going to make myself holy, I'm going to do this prayer time. 
That's, that would be if we could pull ourselves up by the bootstraps, but we can't. It's a heresy. You can't. I can't. So stop trying. When you go to your prayer time, you come in your radical insufficiency, your radical lack of anything, and you call out, as we had two or three weeks ago with the other Lucan parable, God be merciful to me, a sinner. That is how we begin to open ourselves more to the beholding which Christ wants. I'll leave you just with this comforting word from St. Paul. If you go on just a few more verses from the epistle today, it gets kind of truncated. If you go on just down a few more verses, St. Paul says this. We all, beholding, we all beholding the glory of the Lord with open face, That is precisely how we are transformed into the very image of that glory, from glory to glory, even by the Spirit of the Lord. God bless you and Ave Maria.